because I realized how few resources were out there for people like me, even though I knew I, I, I felt alone, admittedly, but I knew in my head I wasn't. I'm like, there's no way I'm the only person struggling. Why aren't more people talking about this stuff? Uh, a lot of the a lot of the messages you'd hear in local church would be like, you know, pray about it, read your Bible, uh, maybe confess it to somebody, like get an accountability partner, install an internet filter, and those are all great starting points. But they've proven to be incomplete solutions in of themselves, and my story certainly is a testament to that. And uh, you know, all the people, the hundreds and thousands of people that we get to work with and influence through our media uh, would say the same. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. Hey there, I am Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. On the show today, we are talking with life coach Sathya Sam about overcoming pornography addiction. And I was not aware of this, but did you know that 40 million Americans are regular visitors to pornography sites and that the porn industry's annual revenue is more than the National Football, Basketball, and Baseball League combined? It's true. That is a lot of money and a lot of people engaging in porn. Now, pornography is a problem in our homes, in our churches, and our communities, and it's not just an issue for those who don't go to church. In fact, 57% of pastors say that porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. And 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. Pornography impacts both men and women with 55% of married men and 25% of married women say that they watch porn at least once a month. It's been called the new drug, but it's anything but new. The struggle with porn has been around for a really long time, but there has been a dramatic increase in the last decade because the use of online porn and the accessibility of pornography has skyrocketed with technology and the internet. Most kids today are exposed to porn by age 13 and 84% of males and 57% of females by the ages of 14 or to 18 have viewed porn already. Just like any other addictive behavior, porn impacts how the brain functions and how people relate to one another. But we'll talk more on that in a minute. While no one is denying that pornography is a growing concern, there are very few people who are willing to talk about it. Only 7% of pastors say their church has a program to help people who are struggling. This can be for a number of reasons, and I'm sure you can imagine them, but one of those reasons are there are not a lot of resources or tools for leaders to help talk about it. Like a lot of addiction and mental health issues, leaders don't want to broach that issue or talk about that topic because they don't want to make it feel worse. They don't want to make it worse, or they feel unqualified, or they don't have the ability to offer follow-up support, or perhaps the leaders themselves are struggling. And this was Sathya's experience. He was a Christian. He loved God and, and he was even pursuing ministry while at the same time he was struggling with a pornography addiction. 
He knew it was a sin. He knew it was hurting him. And yet it was so hard for him to shake. For years, Sathya struggled and with on and off again sobriety. Uh, But after he made a critical discovery, and I'll let him share that part, he found success and has been free ever since. It's been over seven years. Sathya now spends his time coaching and mentoring men from around the world to find new life again, free from porn. Sathya was a normal kid growing up in a Christian home in Western Canada in Saskatchewan. He came from a long line of pastors and in typical fashion, he resisted his call to ministry and began pursuing a career in psychology. But it was while he was in school that he had a come to Jesus moment and he could no longer deny the clear call to ministry on his life. Did you feel pressure Man. or a calling? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was it was resistance as it usually is. Like I'll never be a pastor like my dad. <laughs> and then I studied biology in university. And that's where my faith kind of hit the road. Like very atheistic environment, kind of mocking the idea of God. And I'm starting to question like, yeah, wait, why do I believe what I believe? So that was the a, a really formative season where I actually discovered my faith in God and it, it wound up being kind of like a, a turning point in my life. And pretty shortly after, I was like, okay, you know, Jesus, my life is yours. I'm in. Pretty shortly after, I felt that pull. I was I was pursuing psychiatry at the time. And I, I would have been able to successfully go in that direction. My grades were good enough. I had like a volunteering profile. And I had lost a bunch of friends to suicide in high school. So that was the inspiration behind that desire. And I could just feel all the passion shifting once I committed my life to Jesus. It was no longer – like I would have done fine as a psychiatrist. It's not that I had a disdain for it. But this thing about ministry was like bubbling up and um, it reached the point where I just – I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I had to kind of uh, cave into my previous inner vows of never being a pastor and never being like my dad and answering the call. It's one of those things where someone's like, I will never do this. It's like, oh, well, exactly. careful. Careful when yeah. you say that because God right. has a sense God's of humor. God's watching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. yeah. So how long were you a pastor? Because right now you're not functioning in, like, you're not working within a church now, are you? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So I I really started in pastoral positions when I was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that was like kind of part-time worship pastor roles, that sort of thing. Went to ministry school when I was 23 and then um, was a full-time pastor for two years as an assistant pastor and then worked in the executive offices of a church in Toronto for about four years before I started doing Deep Clean mm-hmm. full-time. Mm-hmm. That's so you've seen the inside, you've been a part of the culture of the church and seeing things shift and change. And, and from your experience, did you, did you notice or or see that um, people were coming to the church looking for support? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, maybe I would answer that with two parts. People were coming to the church that needed support. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know that people always knew the church was a place they could get that support. So it is a little bit of A, a little bit of B. I think once you're in the mental health practitioner space, you can't not see the need. Mm-hmm. It's it's written on people's faces and it's literally everywhere. But I think the as far as like, you know, people thinking like, yeah, I can come to the church and get help. Um that part was certainly a lot more lackluster, and that mm. that was true across the board. I, I wound up probably serving in uh, one, two, three, four, I, yeah, I guess four or five different organizations as in my time as a pastor, and I would say that that was pretty much the same in all of them. Wow. 
Yeah. That that idea that the church is a place for help, I, that hurts my heart a little bit. But I would agree with you that you know yeah. when someone when someone is thinking um, I, I'm struggling, their first indication isn't oh I'm going to go to the church. Sometimes it is, but they would maybe attend the church for prayer or yeah. or support, but maybe not um, express specific needs. Yes. Yeah, I, I I I would agree with that. I would say, um, I it's it often just seemed like the church knew that they needed to help, and had no problem offering messages from the pulpit about you know your mental well being and those kinds of things. But then you know when it actually came to like you know maybe putting some money behind a program, right. hiring somebody. Then it was a little bit of like a, there was a deficiency there. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope we change that. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. That's that's why you exist, Laura. That's why you're doing what say, you do. Well, let's you know. <laughs> and the listeners who are listening are often, you know, most of the people that I've connected to, or many of the people I connected to, are saying that I've only been in this role for six months, or my church only hired a year ago, or maybe yeah. two or three years ago. So I think yeah. there's this transition where the church is recognizing, oh, there we have a role to play in people's well-being and people finding support and help. And so I'm glad to hear that, but we have a lot of catch up to do, I think. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And that's, I mean, that's always been my vision with my own life is like trying to intersect local church yeah. with mental well-being. So that's why I like, you know, I love what you're doing. And when you reached out and we were able to connect, I was so thrilled because I think it, it has to be part of the local church in the future. Otherwise, we're going to be in dire straits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's time for the church to talk about those hard conversations or maybe the things that we're not comfortable with because our communities and our congregants are struggling with these issues. And so whether it's uncomfortable as leaders, as ministry leaders, as small group leaders, we need to step into those spaces because people are really needing help. And I'm so excited to connect with you because you are talking about one of the most uncomfortable issues that people have that they feel shame or embarrassment about. You're talking about overcoming pornography addiction. And yeah. I'm so thankful that you are, um, that you're stepping into this space and bringing light to such a huge need. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's not necessarily the easiest work in any environment, let alone a church environment. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Laura, think about like the, the different like hoops you had to jump through just to like get people to see the, the significance of mental health um, in general. And then you think about something as taboo and private as a, as a porn addiction or, you know, sexual sin, if you want to broaden it a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's not not easy work at all. Super necessary, though. You know, the prevalence is only on the rise and the it, there's no difference between inside the church or outside the church for the numbers. So that alone tells tells us everything we need to know. People are are on the pews, they're struggling, and they don't have a lifeline. They don't have a life preserver to get out of uh, really what are some pretty nasty situations. So um, yeah, so it's it's not easy work, but I'm I'm really glad that God's called me to do it because we're making a difference in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, yeah, and we're gonna get to your resources and all of what you offer as far as support for people. But I'd love to hear your story about how what brought you to this work. Like, what was it that drew you to? Okay, this is a need, and this is where God's calling me. Yeah. So, I mean, the the basis of it is I feel like when I look at my my upbringing, the environments I grew up in, 
I should have been the last por- person to have a struggle with pornography. Uh, I'm a you know fourth generation pastor, so grew up in a pastor's home, went to Christian school, lived a really. I was not the rebel pastor's kid. I was the like the good pastor's kid, Sunday school superstar, like really just involved and plugged in and whatever. I got exposed to pornography in the computer lab of my Christian school when I was 11 years old. And um, that was sort of the beginning of it all for me. I wasn't hopelessly addicted overnight. I hadn't even hit puberty yet. I didn't even really understand what I was looking at, if I'm being honest. But it just planted a seed, right? And that's all it really needed to do. By the time I was in high school, it was regular. And when I was in university, it was, it was uh, I don't know, I was dependent on it. Like that's where it was really became an addiction. Mm. And that's the only way I knew how to cope with the cares of life. So the the turning point for me was I had given my life to Christ. I'm ready to serve him. I'm feeling a call into ministry now after kind of resisting it for so long. And I'm like, well, I have to clean up my life. You know, I, I, I gave my life to Jesus. I know what comes with the territory. I grew up in church <laughs> and I was able to, you know, change my relationship with alcohol and start drinking responsibly or, you know, I was more or less avoiding it altogether. I was able to clean up my language, no problem. And I knew I had to quit watching porn and I could not for the life of me do that. And um, that that was actually the birthplace of what I do now because I realized how few resources were out there for people like me, even though I knew, I, I, I felt alone admittedly, but I knew in my head I wasn't. I'm like, there's no way I'm the only person struggling why aren't more people talking about this stuff? Uh, a lot of the a lot of the messages you'd hear in local church would be like, you know, pray about it, read your Bible, mm. uh, maybe confess it to somebody, like get an accountability partner, install an internet filter, and those are all great starting points. But they've proven to be incomplete solutions in of themselves. And my story certainly is a testament to that. And, uh, you know, all the people, the hundreds and thousands of people that we get to work with and influence through our media uh, would say the same. So I think uh, that's that was the birthplace of it. It took me years before I finally experienced freedom. It was about five years of earnest effort. Three years, I was just spinning my tires, doing the stuff everyone told me to do, and it didn't work. In the last two years, I found out how to actually make some progress and really get to the roots of the issue. And that's when my situation began to change. And that was seven years ago that I had my last relapse. And we've been running pretty hard now trying to help other people through deep clean through our platforms and all that. um, Yeah, to help other people have the same kind of recovery Mm -hmm. experience that I did. Yeah. And I read that on your website, you were talking about getting to those deep issues. Are those unique for each person? Or do you find that there is um, a pattern of what draws or holds people within that addiction? So I would say it it kind of is in broad categories. There's three buckets that most people's root issues land in. But then the specifics are very much nuanced based mm-hmm. on the individual. Mm-hmm. So the three buckets are um, emotional. So, you know, we work with men exclusively. It's probably worth mentioning. <laughs> so men men in particular are just notorious for not really understanding their inner world, especially the emotions of it. So this is like, um, sure, this is anger management and handling stress. Those are the things we obviously think of. But it's also like giving guys a chance to experience grief and sadness and whatever else because these things are often driving a lot of their sexual behavior and they don't realize it. So the emotional part is the first. The second would be, uh, to use a more mainstream term, trauma. We call it healing of the heart, but it's the same concept. It's the idea that there's parts of your past either from your upbringing, specific moments, dynamics um, that have taken place that have probably built some callousness and um, some areas in your heart that need a little bit of tenderizing, a little bit of healing. And so uh, we have a very biblical approach in that. Our emphasis is really on forgiveness and repentance, but then 
you know, we have a huge value for trauma, care, and that kind of stuff as well. And then the third bucket is what I call belief systems. <clears throat> Another word would be identity. And this is really um, emphasizing how people see themselves. And often, you know, when you do have a 20-year struggle with a porn addiction, your self-esteem is kind of eroded along the way. And so we're teaching people to see themselves the way Jesus sees them and and restoring that. So typically the roots always fall into, you know, it's either, yeah, they're they're emotionally inept, they have notable trauma or parts of the past that have not been fully addressed, or they have some some faulty thinking, some faulty belief systems that that need some more attention. Mm. I think it's really interesting coming I have uh worked in addiction for um a number of years and I think it's interesting to note that behavioral addiction and substance addiction have very similar root causes like yeah. you know whether it's shopping, gambling, um sex, alcohol, drugs, yep. whatever it is, those root those core three core issues really are at the root of so many things. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh that's kind of the beauty of taking a biblical approach is like you can find these sort of tried and tested principles that basically exist in, you know, any circumstance. I think that's the evidence that you really found a, a legitimate principle, which is what we've tried to do in our approach. I think for me, the fun part about this, it, like the quote unquote fun part, <laughs> is when you get deeper into people's stories and you realize that two people could have, you know, their 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 deficiencies are clearly on the identity piece. They they have really low self-worth, they have no confidence, they believe they have all this like inner head trash about who they are. But the the reasons they're there, the specifics of it are actually totally different based on their life experiences and mm. um, you know the different stuff they've gone through, and that's the really cool part of this is like that that's where like God comes in and does His thing because I can kind of present the principles, but then as you get deeper into people's stories, it's amazing how how much God cares about those little details and those little intricacies, yeah. and that's that's where you really see people's lives start to change. That's it. Really is there's transformation, and we when we start to really. Ad- address some of these belief systems and heart issues for sure. And I think that's the same for so many different things, like um, whether it's a pornography addiction or, you know, it it surfaces in so many different ways for each person. And pornography is, there's so much shame around that or secrecy around that. And, you know, and for Logic, not logical, but you could understand why. But I would love to hear from you more around that culture or, you know, what are some of those deep-seated things that people are like, I cannot share this or this is a secret part? Because I'm just thinking of the people who are listening. Maybe they're listening for this for themselves or maybe they're listening to this as people are coming to me struggling with this. And and what is the headspace that people are at when they are ready to talk about this? Yeah, uh, it's it's not it's not necessarily the the kindest answer in the world, but usually people have hit a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Like I I was speaking to a, a group of men, a group of dads actually earlier this week, and one guy asked a question, and to give a bit of context, he said, you know, I've struggled with this for a long time. In 2020, it reached a tipping point. I'm doing a lot better now, but da da da. da. And I said, oh well, well, if you don't mind me asking, what was your tipping point? Um, and he was married for several years and, and had a one night stand. And it's often like. It is these moments, I think, where people reach – they reach a real rock bottom and their behavior has escalated. That's always the notable part where people mm. generally, if they're – their own volition reaching out to get help in this area, 
usually that's what's happened. Now, we are on a mission to change that narrative because we're trying to raise awareness of how bad things can get and get ahead of this now before it gets worse and all that kind of stuff. That's our mandate. But I would say, especially in a local church environment, it's very rare that somebody's saying, you know, I have I have like a, a five out of 10 conviction about this. I'm going to go talk to my pastor. It's right. like, oh, I have a 12 out of 10 conviction about this because I just paid for sex on the weekend or mm-hmm. I had an affair or I'm starting to watch content that's kind of disturbing me and I don't really understand why I'm watching it. Usually it's it's like the red zone by the time people are actually reaching out and, and getting help, especially in a local church context. Mm. So what are your, how could we provide preventative or can we provide preventative? What are, what are some, is there a role for the church in providing some preventative care or, or is this requiring to bubble over and become a crisis point? Yeah, there's, there's two things the, the local church can do. And I am, I am so wildly passionate about the local church, which is why I love what you're doing. The first thing the local church can do is talk about it. So that's the main problem is like when people think I'm struggling with porn, they don't think I'm going to go to my local church, just like any other <laughs> mental illness, like we were talking right. about, right? So that's a, that's a problem. And I think the reason that it's not being discussed from the pulpit is the the second thing that the local church can do, which is help their leaders and pastors included get the help that they need in this area. Because we're kidding ourselves if we think that leaders themselves aren't struggling. In fact, I could give you a list of hundreds of guys in our program who when we've said, okay, if you're going to do our program, what's on the other side of this for you? Church leadership, church leadership, church leadership. But so many of them keep their butts in the pews because they don't feel qualified. They don't feel worthy. And and I I would say in most cases, rightfully so, they probably should have this more under control. But the the point is that the local church isn't the place that they're going to get that help, even though they want to serve in the local church, but they can't. And I um, I think being able to equip leaders, giving pastors places to get healing as well, Pastors experience the same stresses in life everybody else does, mm-hmm. and they they need just as much help as anybody else, if not more, because it's so nuanced what they go through. Um, and so I think if we had more healthy, healed up leaders in this area, it would probably lead to being able to talk about it more from the pulpit. And so I think those two things are, are the things that I'm dreaming about for the local church and what I'd love to see in the future. There are some great um, options out there even right now, like celebrate recovery is a little bit broader, mm-hmm. uh, but that would be an example of something that at least is like heading in this direction. There's an organization called Pure Desire, and they have offered a lot of local church resources. There's groups that can run out of churches and stuff like that. So there are some things out there that um, that I think are at least make it a little bit easier for churches to at least start a branch or offer something in their own um, building. But those are the two main things that I'd love to see the, the local church kind of, I guess, head towards in this area. Mm. It's it's good because we want to talk about it, but the leaders won't talk about it if they have a conviction of it. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely that barrier. Um, if If we want to talk about it, are you able to share kind of what does the Bible say so about about this issue? Because people are like, okay, if I want to talk about this on a Sunday morning, if I want to be able to, you know, do a small group or a breakout session or a webinar or you know anything that a church can can provide, it's it needs to be um, okay. The foundations in the Word of God and and give some scriptures to kind of base everything off of. What would you say is the go to scriptures or, or things that you found in the Word that that undergird some of the, some of this conversation? 
Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I, I would say a couple of things like we like I said, we kind of have the three buckets. And I think mm-hmm. each of those buckets have different scriptures. Like yes. if you think about like the emotional part of it, like guard your heart above all else yeah. for from it flows the issues of life, uh, trauma and for like when it comes to things like forgiveness, like there's no shortage mm-hmm. of scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. I th- I think the stuff the the stuff that we really uh, try to bring to the table that maybe is a bit different is the identity piece. So, for example, you have a um, you have scriptures like Colossians three, where it kind of lays out like um like the put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, et cetera, et cetera. And we kind of read that and we're like, okay, yeah, it's the laundry list of like the things I'm not supposed to do. If you keep reading that scripture, um, it goes on to talk about how you, um, you're to put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And it's kind of emphasizing two big things there. Number one is how you see yourself, like it, like put on the new self, see yourself the way God sees you, but then you renew it based on how well or how accurate your image is of Christ. And I think if, if you're trying to instill something more biblical in a local church, the the, the first thing for sure is really emphasizing uh, intimate relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as, as maybe like, I don't know, maybe that sounds a bit cliche, <laughs> but it is the honest truth. Like when people really build intimacy with Christ, especially when they can do it at an, like an emotional level, they're working through trauma. Some of the things we talked about when Jesus is involved in all of those parts of your life, something really does change in the heart of the individual. And it's a really beautiful thing to see. Uh, the second thing would be, uh, there's a scripture, it's James 5, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And the context of that scripture is really talking about uh, confessional to uh, leadership. But if we were to broaden that uh, just even a little bit, uh, community is clearly the the incubator for recovery. It's very, very clear. And that's true if you if you go deeper into scripture. But it's also true if you look at the research, the the kind of uh, idiom from a lot of the research in this space, which is quite limited, is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Yes. And that's something that we tout quite a bit in our different channels, because the more connected you are, the stronger your sense of community is, the better, the better off you are, and the more likely you are not only to achieve your desired outcome, which in our case is gain free of pornography, you're more likely to sustain it. And that's that's as kingdom as it gets, is having something that's going to be long-term, uh, multi-generational, changing your lineage. Like those things are all so critical. And without that communal element, it's really hard for people to actually sustain their results. Mm. And you provided example of small groups or things that talk about like Celebrate Covery being a broad um, addressing, you know, those hangups and pure desire. But you also do this in your in your coaching and in your deep clean programs, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we I, I used to do a lot more one-on-one. That's kind of how I started out. And then uh, I basically, my schedule was just full and I decided to turn to groups to kind of keep up with it. And then we got to the groups and everybody's laughing and they're making jokes with each other. And I'm like, oh, my one-on-one sessions were never this fun. Like clearly something's <laughs> going on better. here. <laughs> yeah, it's actually better. And yeah. um, again, this was before I really understood the research and some of these underlying dynamics. So we just, I just made a decision. Everything we do will have groups. And so we're very strong on community. And a lot of the people that do our program, 
end up making friends for life. Um, they, yeah, some of them even meet up in person. Some of them, you know, different ends of the world. They'll travel to meet up with each other. Uh, a lot of them still keep in touch afterwards. Some of them have regular calls and keep each other accountable. So yeah, I mean, our program is a great example of that. And even on, like, we're super active with our, with our podcast. We do a daily podcast. And even listeners of the podcast, we're starting to see some like, some cross pollination happening there and people checking in with each other and hey you listen to this too like there's little like pockets that are being formed so sometimes it happens naturally sometimes it's set but either way that community piece is totally vital for what we do mm. uh, it's great because you you have a specific um audience you leader men leaders who are christian is it faith-based yeah, 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 it is. Faith-based men who are who are leaders who want to overcome pornography. And so I love that you're really clear about who you're serving because then um, there's safety in the community. They know that there's other people who are in the same spot as them who are, yeah. you know, um, walking side by side, facing the same challenges. And, and you know, it, it could be really helpful to have that encouragement. Yeah, and the more taboo the issue is, I think the more impactful it is to see other people with the same struggle. Like we we have a, a part of our system is like, you know, two days in, once someone's on their first call, we just check in with them to see how they're doing and whatever. Because there's a lot of jitters and a lot of things come up in that that first little part. And almost like, I don't know, it, it's like clockwork. We almost always hear guys say, man, on that first call, like I, I just, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was going to join mm -hmm. a call of guys who had it all figured out. I was going to be ostracized for being so weak and so bad in my situation. I had no idea. Like it was so refreshing to just know there's other guys out there who, yes, sure, they're struggling and we can be united on that front. But two, like we invested our time, our money, our energy into doing something about this. That is so cool. And that's that's incredibly unifying. Like it feels like you're part of something bigger than yourself as you're going after this. And that's, um, yeah, it's it's like pouring gas on the recovery fire. It's it's really mm -hmm. powerful. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to to introduce you to so many people today because I truly believe that, you know, we want to serve and support people, but we want to do that not burnt out or we want to address some of the issues in ourselves. Like you said, as ministry leaders, we're people too and face the same struggles and the same temptations and and the stress and the pressure and the overwhelm. And so um, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh man, like this is an area that has always been a struggle with me, then know that there is a safe place that you can go to to seek help um, so that you're able to be healthy and lead a lead a healthy church. Oh, 100%. And I think um, like the way I see church leaders, whether you're actually a pastor or not, you're a shepherd, you know, and God's given you a flock that you're responsible for. And I think a lot of people just aren't able to take their flocks to these places of sexual integrity and whatever else because they don't have access themselves. And so I know, um, and I don't mean that in like a critical or a condemning way. I just mean, I think if you're a leader or if you want long to be a leader, this is one of the best things you can do, not only for mm -hmm. your own sake, but for the sake of those people that God's going to entrust you with. Because we, we're seeing it publicly, like how many people are not tending to this area of their life and how their lives are blowing up in front of the entire world as a mm -hmm. result and how devastating that is, right? Not only to their families and their loved ones, but in some cases, you're talking about millions of people that have trusted a person yeah. and have been let down as a result. So there's there's a great responsibility there, and it's a great opportunity for people to step more into their God-given leadership calling. For sure. So for people who are interested in knowing more, learning more, looking into this, can you share with where people can find you? 
Yeah. So like I mentioned, we have a daily podcast called Unleash the Man Within and, you know, over 500 episodes there. So we've talked about pretty much everything under the sun and we found that to be a really good resource. I think whether you're, you yourself are struggling or maybe, you know, people who are struggling, it's just, it's like giving somebody like a huge library and just saying, Hey, whatever it is you're struggling with, you can start here. Um, so I think that's a great starting point. If people want to go a little bit more in depth, uh, I wrote a book called The Last Relapse and that's sort of our recovery system. Um, so if people don't have the money to do a course, we just say, do the book. Uh, it's actually available for free. It's just my gift. It's my way of kind of giving back after all God's given to me. And so people can get a free copy at thelastrelapsebook.com. And again, another great resource to have in your tool belt if you're helping others. And if you're struggling yourself, then by all means, do the book, follow everything that comes with the free workbook and some other resources. And uh, it's sure to be really helpful for mm. people. I love that. Put like save that, bookmark that, or copy that link to be able to share with others. Low access yeah. to barrier, free, but yet some great resources. I love that. Um, so, Safia, knowing what you know today, gone through your journey of recovery, now helping others, and and knowing more of the research and and how you know those three buckets. What would you tell your past self? in those early years? If you could go back, send yourself a voicemail or, or an email, what would you tell yourself in those early years? I would just say, do the hard things first and stop beating yourself up. So I think uh, the the appeal to me of like internet filters as an example was that it was such an easy fix. It cost me 10 bucks a month and I just had to install it in about two minutes. And I think sometimes we downplay the enormity of these situations and I that's exactly what I was doing. There was a part of me that thought it, there's probably got to be more to it than this, but let's 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 hope that this does the trick. So I mm-hmm. wish I would have done the hard things first. And then we we have um like a a mantra which is that um a mistake made uh once is a mistake, a mistake made twice is a choice. And I think um I I think sometimes I was just a little bit too, uh, I was a little bit too hard on myself. I would make a mistake and I'd be like, oh, come on, Sathya, you know, and I go into this self-deprecating cycle and that's how I would sort of like feel good about myself again. Or I would, I would confess and I would repent before God on my knees, that kind of thing. And just being able to be kind to myself and be like, okay, people make mistakes. I made a choice. I have a chance to learn from this instead. And really like just exhibiting a lot of self-compassion, it changed a lot of my thought life, which eventually changed a lot of my behaviors. And I think those are the two things I would have loved to have latched onto early. Probably could have saved myself a couple of years of recovery, if I'm being (laughs) honest. Yeah. Yeah. That. Thank you so much. I'm excited to have more people engage with your staff and uh, and talking about and bringing into light the the need to to support people who are struggling with pornography. So thank you so much for for joining us today. That was my pleasure, Laura. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. I love talking with Sathia because the issue of pornography is often considered a problem for other people, not those in the church, and certainly not for ministry leaders and pastors. And yet, it is. Ministry leaders are human too and struggle just like everyone else. And so I am so grateful for the work of Sathia and others who are willing to share their story so that others can find freedom. If you can relate to to his stories, to Sathya's story, I encourage you to connect with him. And I'll make sure all of those links that he talked about, his podcast, his book, uh, that small group, and, and a way to connect with him are all mentioned or all linked in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode and it provides you with support and tools to serve your community. Thanks and take care.